Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. Today, I'm joined by two guests, David Lesperance and Melvin Warshaw, who are actually returning for a second episode. You may recognize them from the Agent of Wealth episode 156, The Tax Implications of Moving Abroad. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, here's what you need to know. David is the managing partner of Lesperance & Associates, one of the world's leading international tax and immigration advisors. Melvin is a highly regarded, longtime U.S. cross-border tax and private client attorney, now in sole practice in the U.S. They have 75-plus years of combined experience, making them an unparalleled resource for anyone dealing with the complex legal issues surrounding expatriation and U.S. tax. Together, David and Melvin have successfully advised scores of U.S. and non-U.S. high and ultra-high net worth individuals and their families on a wide range of personal and business tax matters, especially in connection with cross-border income and estate tax planning and compliance in the U.S. They also have co-authored many articles on their field, that have been published by leading media outlets. David and Melvin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be back. Thank you very much. So I brought David and Melvin back onto the podcast because in the first episode we recorded, we primarily focused on expatriation to a foreign country from the U.S. and the tax implications that come with it, immigration issues, and so on. So today we wanted to kind of look at it in reverse or look at the opposite. We'll focus on immigration to the United States from a foreign country. So, David and Melvin, maybe we can kick it off on, on just what are some of the reasons or ways that people are coming to the U.S. now? Well, you know, there's the old Chinese curse of may you live in interesting times. And there's a little debate we're living in interesting times in, in many countries. And so we're seeing, you know, in different regions, different local concerns, which are the motivations. Just as Americans are seeking second residences and citizenships for a variety of reasons, so are foreigners. And we'll go into some of the reasons why they're looking at relocating and, you know, there's mechanics of how. But what we really wanted to cover in this is if they've decided where is the United States, what's the best combined and synchronized immigration and tax strategy to do that? But we're seeing all kinds of different groups of clients. Uh, we're seeing Israeli tech founders who are saying – Startup nation isn't what we thought it was going to be, so we want to relocate, and they'll naturally gravitate towards kind of the technology center, which is the United States. We'll see uh, Chinese, uh, everything from ultra-high net worth business people who say, I don't want to be the next Jack Ma, and or the tech founders there who are saying, well, I'm starting my business in 2023, which is fundamentally different than what Jack Ma or Pony Ma did 20 years ago. It's a different universe, and I want to come from funding and safety there to, you know, U.S. Uh, back then, Jack and Pony Ma had Tiger Management and other funders throwing money at them. Well, now Sequoia and Drayson, they're all worried about the TikTok issue, the CFIUS issues, et cetera. So that's another move. South Africans are seeing brownouts. Um, there was a major strike in Cape Town a few weeks ago. There's an enormous unemployment. And as Reuters uh, said earlier this week, that's a ticking time bomb. Mexicans that are worried about uh, since the election of AMLO, 
today we'll probably get more calls from Argentinians and all kinds of different people. So a lot of those people will go to the United States because it's a well-known brand. They're familiar with it. They may have business here, great education opportunities and employment opportunities, funding for different businesses, etc. So those are the, the kind of hot places and the reasons why they're interested in leaving their home country and they're focusing on oftentimes on the United States as the where we're going to relocate to. I know on our, our last episode, we talked kind of on the reverse and there were even like some countries where if you brought in a certain amount of investment, you would be granted visas or citizenship or permanent status. What's the process? So let's use some of the examples that you gave us. Let's say an entrepreneur from Israel decides he wants to come to the U.S. or even someone from South Africa who, let, let's say, wants better education opportunities for their kids. Is that a different process for coming to the U.S.? And what does that process look like? Sure. And one of the things we emphasized in the last podcast was that both Mel and I are fee-based advisors. We don't take third-party commissions, et cetera. And unfortunately, a lot of the immigration to the United States is driven by commission advisors. And so one of the things you'll oftentimes hear about is called the EB-5 visa. And that can be a long process, 12 and a half years in China, because there's a country quota. But it pays a very high commission. So you'll see lots of marketing and marketing. And, and EB-5 is one of the tools in the toolbox, but there are a lot of other tools that we usually reach for sooner. So if we're looking at that tech founder from China or Israel moving in, we would do something very quickly and get them, for example, intracorporate transfers that we don't have to deal with H-1B caps, et cetera. We can do E-1, E-2 visas, depending on what countries they are coming from. We can later convert that non-immigrant L-1 or E visa to a green card. Unlike the EB-5, it's much faster. They're not throwing money at somebody else. If they make money, they can pat themselves on the back. They lose money. They've got nobody else but themselves to blame. Cheaper, faster, better. But it doesn't pay commissions, so that's why you don't hear much about it. Has the process of immigrating to the U.S. changed over the years, or is it trending one way? Is it easier, harder? Are the quotas or caps higher? Because we hear a lot you know, in the media about immigration, obviously illegal immigration too, but What's changed recently or what, where is it trending or going to? Well, we're looking at business people who have a different set of, of skill sets and different opportunities and different tools that we can use in the, in the toolbox. And countries are trying to attract these golden geese, for lack of a better term. And so the United States, yes, there is a, a timing and process. And as I said, in certain categories, like the EB-5, there's a country quota. So you could be an ultra high net worth billionaire, but if you have a Chinese passport and you go there, it's 12 and a half years before you'll get that green card. Whereas we can get, you know, the L1, get the person and their family here, get F1 visas for the kids to be in, in school and in four to six months, they can convert that to a green card in the uh, third year. So that pathway is just a lot better, a lot cheaper. And if the goal is a green card, doing that much sooner. So there are a number of kind of different immigration strategies. So the first people say, I want to get a green card to the United States. Well, we sit back and say, well, hold on. You want access to the United States. Now, if you're going to school and you want to get a job, a green card may be the appropriate solution. But if you're that generation one, 
who says, well, no, I want to be able to come to the United States. I want to be able to visit children and maybe grandchildren. I want to go to Disney World. I want to visit businesses and stuff, but I don't necessarily want to expose the family wealth to the United States. Well, then an EB-5 for that person is completely inappropriate because it results in a green card, which means at the moment that they ultimately get through that path, they're going to be a U.S. person for tax purposes. It's really understanding what each family member's goals are and coming up with a solution which meets each of those goals. As, as we often say, it's got to make financial sense. So you got to sell it at the boardroom table, but it's also got to sell it at the breakfast table. It's got to meet all the goals of the, of the various family members. What are some of the obstacles you see from, you know, someone approaches you and says, can you help me? What, what are some of the challenges that you, you encounter? For this type of clientele, there are kind of two issues. One is extricating them from their current country. So is there exit taxes? What's residence? Uh, what do they need to do to sever residence? Can we use a tax treaty? Is there currency control? So, for example, in India or China or South Africa, getting the money out of those countries is part of the job. So once we kind of get them out of the foreign pot, we want to make sure that they don't jump into the U.S. tax fire as part of that process. I call getting the immigration status, getting the right fire insurance, second residences and citizenships and statuses in the United States or others. But it's got to sync with the fire escape plan, which is we're going to extricate you from your existing country and we're going to bring you in and do all the tax planning necessary to make sure that you, you land in the United States. Too often, Mel and I see the siloing of you retain immigration counsel First off, are they commission-driven or are they acting in your best interest? But let's assume that they act in your best interest. But if they're completely isolated from understanding what the tax implications are, the cost of that immigration is going to be a rounding error compared to the unnecessary tax that they had to pay because they didn't not only engage somebody like Mel but have an advisor who was working in sync and wasn't siloed from you know the work that Mel does. Okay. And segueing into the tax application, I guess, how does the U.S. tax system apply to immigrants? And then what are the, the implications of the different types of visas or the different ways that they come over? What's different from a, let's say, someone that's a citizen or someone that's here? The initial threshold question is, do you want to obtain a green card or is there perhaps another way for you to be present in the U.S., but without obtaining a green card. The difficulty with a green card is if you obtain a green card and your tax on your worldwide income, and if you are physically present in the U.S. with your green card, you're presumed to be a U.S. domiciliary with similar U.S. estate tax consequences. You also face the problem that if you hold the green card for more than seven years, you're going to have a difficulty in leaving the U.S. Contrast that with the situation of an Israeli tech entrepreneur who says, I'll come to the U.S., I'll test out Silicon Valley, get me an L-1 visa. Well, that individual can stay as long as they have the L-1 visa without triggering the exit tax. The exit tax in the U.S. is only imposed on U.S. citizens and long-term green card holders. So if the individual L-1 visa holder is physically present in the U.S. for the requisite amount of time each year, they'll be an income tax resident, 
But if they decide to go back to Israel in the sixth year or the tenth year of an extended L1 visa, assuming it's permissible, then they don't face the exit tax. So that's a pretty big uh, consideration. And I think David would agree with me that in general, the best advice, but again, this is an oversimplification, is if possible, get an L1 visa or some other visa and then defer obtaining a green card. Because once you obtain a green card, the clock is going to start running. David, any thoughts? Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And it can be very true for that young founder who's going. But for the older business person, you know, their other focus and then the other reason that they want to avoid being a long-term green card holder is triggering the Section 2801 inheritance tax issue. So we'll oftentimes move multiple generations of the family and we'll do different things for different people. But one of the ultimate kind of planning strategies that Mel puts together, and and I need to make sure I don't do anything to trip up, is relating to how does that Gen 1 pass the wealth on to Gen 2, Gen 3, et cetera, in a tax-efficient way while also making sure that they're not unduly subjecting that tax to unfavorable family law judgments. So David gave an example of a South African family that we're working with where we anticipate that three generations of the family will move to the U.S., or perhaps the older generation might move to Bermuda so that they're close by the second and third generations, which want jobs in the U.S. and want to live in the U.S. The reason that's important is that, for example, if the second and third generations move to the United States, and let's say they obtain green cards or they stay long enough that they decide they want U.S. citizenship, well, then the second and third generations will be potentially subject to U.S. estate tax. And so among the things that we would consider would be how can generation one set up various ownership structures for businesses they left behind in the home country here, South Africa, that would give the second and third generation in the U.S. access to the wealth but not cause inclusion of that wealth in their U.S. gross estates. Because if they become U.S. citizens like myself, you have a $13 million lifetime gift estate tax exemption. And then obviously, second and third generation members of the family that move here would have to take into account whether or not their spouses become U.S. citizens because there are limitations on how much money, how much property a person can transfer annually and, frankly, at death to a non-U.S. citizen. So maybe obtaining U.S. citizenship for the second and third generation would be feasible. It would certainly make uh, the U.S. estate planning easier. Let me go back and say that this generally, this is a generalization, two overarching issues that someone who's coming to the U.S. would, would face. Number one, from an income tax point of view, what type of entity did you set up in South Africa, in Israel or China? Is it a limited company? So if no individual has personal liability, the U.S. by default is going to treat that as a limited company. And if it's a limited company, and let's say that the person moving to the United States controls the company, but it's a foreign company as the United States, well, then you need to be concerned with at least a couple of the anti-deferral tax regimes in the U.S. The first and the one that's most likely to apply would be our controlled foreign corporation rules. 
which basically force these U.S. individuals. So if you become a U.S. income tax resident, you're going to be subject to these rules. And if you control more than 50% of a private company in Israel, South Africa, China, or anywhere else in the world, and you're now a U.S. income tax resident, you're going to have a phantom forced income at the shareholder level of a portion of the income of the foreign company. Since 2017, the portion of the income that is subject to current U.S. income tax, regardless of distributions of earnings and dividends, is not only the foreign passive investment income of the company, but also a significant portion of the active income under the guilty rules. So therefore, these individuals have an incentive to do some type of income tax planning. Perhaps the easiest and the one that is perhaps most readily available is to file an election. But this is an election that has to be filed before they become a U.S. income tax resident to treat the foreign company as a disregarded entity or if there's two owners as a partnership. So, for example, I have a South African limited company and I'm going to move to the U.S. and I own more than 50 percent of the stock. I've got to be concerned that I let's pretend I own 100 percent of the stock. If I move to the U.S., I could have 100 percent U.S. income tax on virtually all the current income from the South African company, even though I never declare a dividend and bring it physically to the U.S. So that's a big problem. And the other problem is that many of these individuals will invest in foreign mutual funds, non-U.S. mutual funds, non-U.S. private equity investments are typically made through foreign corporations. And invariably, those entities satisfy the definition of a passive foreign investment company, a PFIC. The problem with PFIX is no matter how large your ownership percentage in the foreign corporation, you're tagged with some fairly unfavorable anti-deferral tax regimes. But if you can be properly advised, maybe you can file a check-the-box election to disregard the entity as a partnership. Not always possible. And then there are some other elections that ameliorate some of the very harsh anti-deferral tax regimes. The third anti-deferral tax regime, in addition to CFC and PFIC, is the throwback tax. And throwback tax applies to individuals that um, have foreign trusts, typically foreign non-grantor trusts, that make distributions to U.S. citizens and U.S. residents. So we have these three anti-deferral tax regimes that all have to be navigated from an income tax point of view. From an estate tax point of view, the major concern of the client coming to the U.S. from South Africa or Israel would be, well, what happens if I die in the U.S. and the U.S. imposes its U.S. estate tax? If I'm a domiciliary of the U.S. and living there with a green card, the U.S. is going to impose its U.S. estate tax on my worldwide asset. That means that I'm going to have to pay U.S. estate tax on the fair market value of my shares in the South African company. So in order to prevent that, the way I typically get involved is I will regularly recommend that the client consider, before moving to the U.S., setting up what's called a drop-off trust. And the concept of a drop-off trust is if the individual transfers their shares in the South African company to the irrevocable U.S., say, Nevada directed trust, then if the client dies while in the U.S., there'll be no U.S. estate tax because 
the shares in the South African company will be owned by the Nevada Irrevocable Trust. That's the big picture of how we can help people really ameliorate these complex rules. Is there any difference to the estate implications of it if the asset overseas was acquired before or after they came to the U.S.? Generally, no. The U.S. Is the if the individual is a U.S. domiciliary, let's let's take the South African. He's going to be taxed on the date he makes the gift or the date he dies. It's taxed on worldwide assets. On the other hand, if the individual says, well, I'm only coming to the U.S. for a year and a half. I'm keeping my home in South Africa. I'm testing the waters. I've made absolutely no commitment to uh, permanently move to the United States. I would likely take the position that that such individual has no intent to remain permanently in the U.S. as there's always an intent to remove themselves and go back to South Africa. So in that case, such individual would be treated as a non-citizen, non-domiciliary. And the problem there is to the extent they own U.S. real estate or U.S. jewelry or artwork in the U.S., the U.S. estate tax exemption for such non-citizen, non-domiciliaries is only $60,000. So they've got to be careful. And that's one of the reasons that in planning for acquisitions of uh, residences, it's often recommended that the individual set up either a foreign company or perhaps an irrevocable trust and then put cash into it and have that entity buy the residence in the United States. There are some difficulties in using a foreign corporation because you could run into the U.S. making the argument of a constructive dividend to the extent the individual used the residence while in the U.S. So maybe a trust is better, probably has to be a U.S. trust because we have a rule that if a foreign trust allows a U.S. Benef- resident beneficiary or U.S. citizen beneficiary to use the trust property, this phantom income, to the uh, beneficiary. And what about, you're talking about the, um, let's say, the, the person who has these assets, but what about someone who inherits a foreign asset? What, what's their implication? Well, the implication is that if they inherit outright, and let's say, take the example of an individual, goes to Stanford, loves Silicon Valley, and raises his family there, but his parents still live in China. So the best advice there would be for the parents in China to set up a a two-phase trust. One, and and transfer ownership of, let's pretend it's a Cayman company, because most Chinese um, will have either Cayman or BVI companies, much easier to list on the New York Stock Exchange, and they would not have um, a Chinese company. Maybe they've got a Hong Kong company. And let's pretend that the family owns 100% of the shares of this foreign company, and they're very concerned about their child and grandchildren in the U.S. having U.S. estate tax problems. So what the parents might do is they'd set up a two-phase trust. The first phase would be what's called the foreign grantor trust. And during the first phase, while the matriarch or patriarch is alive, it would be revocable. Okay, that's fine. And therefore, the parent has complete control over the trust. Then when the parent dies, the trust would convert and automatically become an irrevocable trust at death. But it would be a U.S. trust and it would be irrevocable. And therefore, there'd be no estate tax inclusion for the children or grandchildren so that you create a dynasty trust in effect during phase two after the matriarch or patriarch has died and the trust is revocable. Mark, one of the things is as you listen to Mel and we go through this, the reality is that 
most immigrants, even sophisticated immigrants to the United States, isolate and silo their immigration advisors and their tax advisors. And the immigration advisors and the tax advisors really are operating in completely different tracks, not knowing what the other side is doing. And it can result in a failure to take opportunities like even the simplest things like not taking the steps to give a, a step up in fair market value for your cost basis for those assets as you come into the United States. But one of the areas that we're seeing a lot of is some people come in, they get a green card for a number of years, and then they go back or they go somewhere else. And so if an immigration advisor is sitting there saying, well, your resident alien card expired, so you're not a green card holder. And then they go and talk to their accountant and their account, they say, well, I'm not a green card holder anymore. Oh, good. You're not a U.S. person for tax purposes anymore. Completely unaware of the expatriation rules, completely unaware that no, the IRS still considers you, and so does the INIS, to be a green card holder. It's kind of like just as your pass when your passport expires doesn't mean that you cease to be a citizen. It just means you don't have a valid travel document. And because those red and alien cards are issued for 10 years, oftentimes we'll have people who inadvertently failed to file completely out triggered all kinds of different events. Oh, and then they talk to their new accountant somewhere else and they file a treaty election or a closer connection. All these things have ramifications between the immigration and the tax. And likewise, you'll have tax lawyers who are unaware of the different opportunities available to the client with regards to immigration strategies that would be much more tax efficient than kind of you know what the salespeople are selling them. Let me share with you an example, Mark, that will really highlight the problem. So earlier this year, I was asked to get involved with a fellow from Scotland who wanted to give up his green card after about 25, 30 years, had a successful business in the United States, married to a U.S. citizen, and they had a child who is living in England. Well, at the first meeting, I asked the client to provide me with various documents, and lo and behold, in this meeting occurred in June of 2023, what was in the documents he gave me? A November 2021 Form I-407. And as David knows, that's a problem because that... That's a relinquishment of green card status. It's an immigration document. Thank you. Yes. And so he explained to me, oh, yeah, I was making my 300th trip back to the U.S. from Scotland, I flew through Dublin and the U.S. Border Patrol person in Dublin said, look, I don't think you've been in the U.S. for a long time. And if you want to get on that plane, you need to sign this form. My client had no idea what he was signing. And what he was signing was a relinquishment of permanent legal status in the U.S. That triggered full inclusion of his seven-figure IRA in income. That triggered the exit tax. And we now have a compliance problem because he's late in filing Form 8854 expatriation statement with the U.S. government saying, hey, in 2021, I abandoned my U.S. green card. So we have to go through some remediation. It's a big deal. It's a problem. Yeah, I can tell you, Mel, you know, before I either like to say saw the light or went to the dark side and got called to the bar, I worked as a Canadian officer that would have been similar to that American. And what Mel is referring to in Dublin is in some places like Dublin, Toronto, for example, you actually clear U.S. customs and immigration in the foreign country. 
and then you arrive at a domestic terminal as opposed to flying in and arriving at an international terminal at JFK or, or Logan or wherever. And so, Mark, if you walked up and I, and I see passport, I see your name. Oh, you got a green card here. Um, your resident alien card expired. I, as an immigration officer, have a choice that I'll present to you. And I hate doing paperwork. And say, well, I can spend 20 minutes writing up all this paperwork. We'll report you. You'll go through an administrative process. And it will probably result in you losing your green card. You'll be adjudicated to have lost your green card status. That's option one. Option two, sir, is consign this little piece of paper here and I voluntarily relinquishing your green card. And I'll let you go to your meeting, wedding, reunion, whatever you're doing. So, of course, humans being humans, not understanding your average green card holder is not a Mel Warshaw or David Lesbros. Oh, sure. Sounds great. And so we've had kind of a number of these cases. And increasingly, there's a vast amount of misconceptions. I just did a LinkedIn post about a well-known kind of tax blogger who had quoted a woman saying, oh, I can't renounce my U.S. citizenship. It's against the law, which is completely wrong. But the most dangerous part is that the person who did that quote, she's the tax head of the Democrats abroad. So there are widely held misconceptions about expatriation, loss of green card, what tax ramifications are. And again, if this client had been talking to Mel beforehand and we talked, Mel, put a dollar figure on what you would have saved him. Well, his exit tax is going to be close to a million dollars. His bigger problem is a U.S. citizen wife and a U.S. citizen daughter. He'll be a covered expatriate for life. He's probably worth about seven, eight million dollars. How is he going to get his assets to his U.S. citizen wife and U.S. citizen daughter without them having U.S. inheritance tax? U.S. inheritance tax starts at 40 percent over $17,000. And there's no lifetime gift estate tax exemption. Big problem. So I'm 90 minutes into the first converse, into the first meeting, and the client says, "Oh, by the way, I have two adult sons who have never lived in the U.S. from a prior marriage." And I immediately say, "Well, when the time comes, we may need to consider utilizing them as part of your estate plan because they could certainly make gifts as long as it's not a step transaction." And they're not intermediaries under the U.S. tax definition. And they may play an important role in the inheritance of your U.S. family. Is there any type of redo or is it he signed the paper and it's... So so they would have to try to claim they, they did it under duress. They may have been uninformed and not fully informed. But that duress argument is very difficult to make. In fact, I've never seen it successfully done. Uh, David, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the person who you know, is foreign, makes a decision to come over, and one of the, you know some of the challenges they have to figure out is during exit tax and how do they, the currency, how do they get money over? A scenario that I see a lot is someone that's over here and they're let's say they've been here for a while, they've attained their green card, but they still have assets, and most of the time it's these passive. Maybe it's they built up a real estate portfolio before they came, or even I see some people with large amounts of cash. They want to bring that over to the U.S. They said they're making that commitment. They're staying here. What's the best way for them to get that money over to the U.S.? Well, they've already got the immigration status. So, you know, they've made the commitment wisely or unwisely already on that. So it's really, that's a tax question. The first question that I would ask is, have you been U.S. tax compliant? That's a real good question to lead into, Mark. There are numerous 
U.S. tax in, international information tax reporting obligations in respect of your foreign assets? Have you been filing FBARs on your foreign bank accounts? Have you been reporting your foreign financial assets on Form 8938? Did you have any mutual funds abroad that you've been reporting on 8621s for PFIX. It goes on and on and on. But fortunately, the U.S. IRS has at least two remediation programs. And if the individual wants to become U.S. tax compliant, really bring those assets over here, that individual could voluntarily enter into what's called the streamlined Domestic Offshore Procedures, or SDOP, remediation program. In order to be eligible for that program, the individual just needs to demonstrate that their position or their their behavior was inadvertent or mistaken rather than willful or in reckless disregard of known rules and regulations. And that's usually pretty easy to demonstrate. I put together a a 25, 30-page sort of brief of why the individual showed full intended to show full compliance with U.S. tax laws. They're very difficult. They're onerous. They're technical. Well, maybe they relied on a professional and said, oh, you don't have to file anything. So it depends on the circumstances. And there are some uh, proven ways to mitigate. And the only penalty is that the individual would have to pay with the submission of the SDOP, a 5% miscellaneous offshore penalty based on the missing or unreported income or unreported assets. And as things go, it's a pretty good deal because you get closure. And in general, if your behavior was truly mistaken or inadvertent, the IRS will not go back and pursue earlier years. But you do have to become compliant for the five years uh, before you file this um, streamlined submission. But it's a good way to become into compliance. It's, it's an IRS-approved program. Yeah, make makes sense. Well, David and Mel, that's all the questions I have for you today. I want to thank you both for joining me on today's episode. It was a pleasure speaking to you. It's a complex world in the U.S. and, and foreign, so I appreciate your knowledge. For those of you who haven't listened to our first episode uh, that we did with David and Mel, we'll link to that in the show notes. Otherwise, how best can listeners get in touch with both of you? So the name is Lesperance, L-E-S-P-E-R-A-N-C-E, David Lesperance, Lesperance Associates. You can find me on LinkedIn or my website, which will have all the contact details uh, on it. And individuals who wish to reach me can reach out to melvinawarshaw.com. That's my website. And uh, I will receive any inquiries and I will respond as soon as I can. And you'll find on both of our websites lots of the articles um, that Mel and I have have written together or that we've each written uh, done done separately. And so that's a good resource for people to really kind of dig into from the light and fluffy all the way to the super technical. Great. We'll link to all that on the show notes. Uh, Thank you again, David and Mel. And thank you, everyone uh, who tuned in today's episode. Don't forget to follow the Agent of Wealth on the platform you listen from and leave us a review of the show. We're currently accepting new clients, and if you'd like to schedule a one-on-one consultation with our advisors, please do so at bowdasfinancial.com backslash call. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Bowdas Financial. 
the content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.